Welcome to the Elevate Purpose podcast, which is all about learning from the people working to solve the world's most important challenges. I'm Michael Slavey from Timshell. Today we're speaking with Morgan Binswanger, who is now the head of communications and engagement at Harvard University, after spending almost eight years as the chief of staff at Livestrong, who we spoke with back in March at South by Southwest. Welcome. Today we've got uh, on day four of South by Southwest, being joined by Morgan Binswanger, who has no title and no job, so I'm not sure how to introduce him, so I'm going to make him introduce himself. Thanks for uh, coming here and being with us for a little while. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for including me in the whole uh, in the whole circus here at South by. It is uh, a circus. We've been is. having a series of conversations about sort of all aspects of the social impact community, everything yeah. from civic tech and innovation to the future of philanthropy, uh, data, a whole bunch of different dimensions of things. And you've seen a lot of these challenges mm-hmm. from a lot of different places mm-hmm. between your you know, sort of public-private partnership stuff, a lot of your time at, at Livestrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as a starting point, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about where you see us in, this, in our evolution around how we are tackling big problems. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so much infrastructure, there are so many institutions, but there's also like a new nonprofit every five minutes it feels like. And, mm-hmm. and I'm curious about just your, your perspective on the landscape of how public sector and the Silicon Valley world is intersecting with traditional philanthropy, is intersecting with the foundation world and what challenges that's creating mm-hmm. and what opportunities that creates too. Yeah, sure. So just for context, you were saying, so what, what, what the hell am I doing? Uh, a lot of my choices in terms of career had been pretty much in this, what's now obviously sort of called the social space and, um, really early on, uh, wanted to be able to work on big issues for big change, but also with, uh, teams and, and people and organizations that were at that precipice of making leaps. And so I've been really lucky to work with, uh, not only did I sort of start out uh, working uh, at the U.S. Department of Ed doing education policy in the early days of charter schools, but also looking at issues around uh, housing with Habitat for Humanity. And I was at Creative Artists Agency when they started their foundation and uh, have been with uh, Special Olympics International and then most recently with Livestrong and really places that are um, at the cusp of those big changes. And I think that it's mirrored, my interest is mirrored to some degree what many others have done themselves in the last 20 years or 10 years, uh, versus really think differently about what has been traditional philanthropy. But I don't even think there's anything to be called traditional anymore. I think most uh, giving is really, uh, it emanates from the individual wanting to make a difference and finding the pathway to do that. And for years, that's been very much a ladder process. Um, those are with two Ds, not two Ts, where folks really have to sort of climb the ladder to not only get engaged, but to make a big difference, and that's been turned on its head. And certainly technology has changed that dramatically, and I think the biggest uh, discussion, and you and I have talked about this for years, is looking at, well, how do you measure that? Sort of how are folks moving the needle, whether it's in their own town or whether it's in uh, looking at some kind of nationwide effort or certainly global yeah, work. And, how, and how, do we, how do we define the needle, right? So certainly. That's well, been a big an interesting, I remember discussions we had. Needle and tools, you know? Yeah. How does that actually... What does impact mean? Totally. What, what does it mean to totally. be making progress on these issues? Because we it, we have an easy time measuring activity, <laughs> right? It's, it, is, it is relatively easy with a little bit of effort to measure busyness. Mm-hmm. Like we are doing things, we are running programs, there, stuff is happening, we are raising money. 
we're spending money on that on that busyness but is that creating a, the new world that we set out to to create um, this is one of the fundamental questions of the relationship to me between sort of the rise of analytics and like it is easier to measure things than it has been in the past. It is easier to analyze data than it has been in the past. But to what end? And on whose compass? And is there even agreement on what that is? And I think we've got to balance, uh, determine the balance between looking at uh, where one's individual interests lie uh, versus what's the field doing. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, certainly the larger foundations in particular, the family foundations, uh, sort of I call legacy foundations uh, of the past, have been the owners of a lot of that, the owners of the expectation and the execution and the big scale change, which in many ways bore out of academia. I'm giving that a broad swath, sure, but it certainly course. wasn't born out of a business approach. That shifted certainly in the last 30 years or so in large part, certainly the last decade. Obviously, you, you, you in particular have been leading a real shift in both the thinking and the practices where there has been the ability to both measure, monitor, and execute around one individual or that organization's mm -hmm. goal. I think there's a gap, though, between looking at fields of change. Okay. Um, and I think that that's, to some degree, um, there's tension between sort of the folks who are new and the folks that have been doing philanthropy for a while. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, because when you think about like we think about a given issue space, right? And we see this in the lens of the challenge of attribution, right? Of on any given issue, there are dozens of actors. There are dozens of different types of interventions, different types of organizations, all working toward, you know, education in Austin. There are dozens and dozens of organizations attacking different, you know, early childhood education, after school programs, in school programs, political policy change. And all of those things have an impact. And as Austin makes progress, they all deserve some portion of the credit. And there's so much, rather than seeing that as an opportunity for alignment, collaboration, coordination, teamwork, a lot of nonprofits see that as like a dangerous problem around the competition for donors. And uh, you know, one of the things that, that we have, have talked about before and, and that we've talked about a little bit this week is, is there, is there power in using sh the sort of a shared idea of success in a space as a way of making it easier to collaborate. And, and what I mean by that is instead of measuring our own business busyness, if we're all optimizing around the same, a same or at least similar idea of what success looks like, does it become easier to work together? Well, boats and tides. I mean, there's no question. So I think what's been missing, especially in the last 20 years or so, um, and I'm not saying that from any professional, you know, scientific interpretation, but I, I it's I think fairly true, uh, has been the recognition of the power of agency and brokerage. Uh, okay. You have a lot of groups, individuals, quote great ideas, lots of money thrown in something. Um, very few who've invested time in, in creating the platforms to allow for a varying degree of interpretation, either on the metrics, on the topic, or more importantly, getting organizations to actually work together. I think that's fallen to some degree on places like community foundations or traditional groups who would hold together a who community's interest. Who naturally see a portfolio. Who naturally who would see a portfolio or... Um, in some cases, I think that there are truly inspired sort of interests to be held around a subject, but very few 
uh, efforts that I see on a large scale where that is the intention. We are merely a platform to gather host and help provide space to make sure that greatest efficiencies are being achieved and greatest collaboration reaches X, Y, and Z over, you know, PT and, PT and Q years. Um, there aren't a lot of folks doing that. Right. And that's, a, I find, one, it's a market there's a market opportunity. Sure. Um, if you want to look at this from a sort of uh, opportunity standpoint. And I think there's um, an intersection there with sort of the movement toward impact investing. Totally. And I the, think that the that's rise correct. Of those concept, things as, as sort of complex and structural as a social impact bonds, but also just people who are looking for their dollars to be doing more than turning from one into two. So likely a lot of that pressure is probably coming from their boards, either whether it's a uh, living donor foundation, obviously the existing founders, or from a more traditional foundation. Um, they want the, quote, recognition for any number of different reasons. Uh, I would argue strongly, especially for folks who are coming into the space who are newer, uh, that there really needs to be a little bit of an ego team. Uh -huh. And folks need to step back from why they are interested and invested in change and understand the complexities are are deeper than just your own 990 and your own annual report. It's interesting that you that you bring up ego. It's it's come up a couple of times in some of the conversations we've had here in, in our lounge, but also just in some of the other talks around uh, the 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 value and importance of of humility and of and 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 of recognizing where we're strong and where we're weak and and of realizing that, that that we can get strength from others if we're willing to sort of acknowledge that our organizations aren't perfect. Um, but I, I think there's we've created sort of some artificial, unproductive pressure on being honest about this. Um, it's very hard sometimes for nonprofits to talk about things that aren't working. Of um, course. And and I think the, to our detriment, we repeat we repeat things and we we struggle to do new things because it's it is very difficult to ex to experiment in an environment where, f f uh, you know, the in an environment where talking about things not working is n not only frowned upon but but can, but can be disastrous for an organization. Mm -hmm. um, it it becomes very hard to do. It becomes very hard to innovate. It becomes very hard to do new things. Well, I look at what just happened with Wounded Warrior. You know, they just fired their top two employees. I don't know the organization well. I'm reading what others have read. So, and I'm always careful to believe what I read. But to some degree, uh, uh, an organization that was beginning to move in a new direction, thinking differently about problem solving on a really complex issue, uh, came under extreme fire for its method uh, of how they were raising money and then money expenditure. Again, complex issue for every organization. Uh, and certainly as one who was at Livestrong, we came under extreme scrutiny um, and very challenging on issues that in some ways are sort of pedestrian around how you run an organization right. um, that we then ended up having to defend or a wounded warrior would have to defend or X, Y, and Z organizations sure. that are out there. And so I think there's got to be as well uh, a better job speaking of this an idea of sort of uh, collusive leadership so to speak uh, around framing how nonprofits can work and I would say one of the things I don't know if you talked about this with some of your other uh, colleagues here this week um, you know we've had a, a, a plethora of folks come into the nonprofit sector and established nonprofits yeah. uh, on a very wide range. And that goes back, obviously, you know, well beyond when the tax code was first drafted around this. But, you know, let's not forget that we still have the National Football League as a nonprofit organization, technically right. speaking. That seems relatively absurd 
compared to your favorite organization in wherever, you know, uh, town USA uh, that's serving soup to folks who are hungry, and yet the same tax de- designation is held. There, there at some point comes a level of absurdity to that. So I think there needs to be a broader understanding with so many people with so much interest in doing something to see that these are very complex things that people are trying to solve. Yeah, and, and the, the structural question I, is, I, I, there's, uh, is always an interesting one to me around, you know, even if your tax designation says you're a nonprofit and, you, you know, it sort of gives you sort of tax favorability and certain kinds of treatment, it doesn't mean that you don't need a business model. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, the NFL is an interesting example, right? It's a multi-billion dollar industry, wildly profitable um, for lots of people. Um, and, and the idea that because we are trying to solve problems and provide services and take care of people and, and, and make the world different and better does not mean that as an organization we don't need to figure out, you know, uh, how, to be, how to run a sustainable organization that, that we can do that work consistently in ways that grow in scalable ways. Um, Lane Wood was giving a t- part of the pa- panel last uh, from who started out at Charity Water. <laughs> Um, I was talking on one of the panels here this week on the you know evolution of philanthropy, and, and one of the things that he he brought up was this idea that regardless of your tax status, if you are an organization doing work, if you don't figure out a sustainable way to run your company, you will eventually be forced into decisions that are not aligned with what you set out to do. Correct. And that sustainable biz- that sustainable model might be you're just a machine at grants, and you mm-hmm. just decide you're going to be the best organization ever at the grant treadmill. Yeah. And you're going to invest in that, and you're going to have talented people working on those things. But it, we often forget the, I think, you know, the, the intersection here at South By is such an interesting one around entrepreneurship and startups and nonprofits and institutions, and there's sort of a little bit of everybody here. Um, and a lot of people thinking about impact from very different perspectives. And I think there, there is, there's stuff to be learned in all directions. I think at South by, we sometimes get like a little obsessed about innovation and novelty, um, and forget the, the subject area expertise and experience of the social impact community as it exists. But the, the reality that starting with a business model is, should be part of how we think about building an institution. Um, is something that I don't think we always do in the nonprofit community, right? Because we, we often start with programs because it's our nature and it's our experience. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that there is this, to some degree, and this is just my own take in looking, especially at the last decade in particular, you know, if we're going to talk about the Internet of Things, I would also talk about the humanity of things. Mm. And if philanthropy is ultimately about humanity, I think that it's been masked by a focus on the innovation and the new app and the technology while certainly providing phenomenal efficiencies for organizations that do have fewer people, less money, big ideas, has been tremendously helpful. At times, though, I think we've all been in enough rooms or board meetings or conversations where there is such an extreme focus on just the business model or just the dashboard or just go to the the shiny shiny new thing. We forget why we all either wanted to give money, wanted to give money away, wanted to help with grant, whatever the reasons are that we get involved, to help other people is the bottom line. Uh, And obviously to do that effectively and efficiently, but it also emanates from a human impulse uh, that is an emotional decision. 
And I think that that gets lost sometimes in the apps and the innovation conversations. Uh, and I that is a that's a concern of mine. I have some skepticism around that. Yeah, I think there. I mean, I think there's sort of no question that the world, the the, the sort of changing and evolution in the way we consume information, our visibility into other parts of the world has made it, in some ways, more accessible to, to to be to care about more diverse farther part way parts of the world right we can see further into the world than we could before and that makes it harder to ignore problems um, in certain ways and it makes it easier to engage in certain problems but it also invites this question around the the, the sort of collectivism uh, kind of debate around what kind of engagement is valuable and and there is no question in my mind that involvement at any level is valuable but where in that chain of evolution of an organization um, you know, do things like petitions and signups and, and sort of online uh, grassroots-based funding. Where, where do all these things fit relative to the mission of the organization? And if at the end of the day, you know, there is a service to be delivered to another human, the, some of those actions are, are further down the ladder of engagement. And that's okay. It doesn't mean they're not valuable. Mm-hmm. But I think we, we have to be careful about how we in, interpret the value of innovation. Correct. I mean, I think if you're going to judge culture change on a quarterly basis, you're going down a really bad path. Mm. I mean, Maimonides obviously wrote about this a thousand years ago and sort of walked through the different levels of engagement around why are people philanthropic. And obviously, he was a theologian and rabbinic scholar, but walked through pretty simple human terms of why people get involved in philanthropy to begin with. And we just happen to have now an extraordinary amount of tools that are accessible to all of us. Right. Let's not forget and peel back, though, again, the human motivation for why we get involved and what the end game, which is to food, shelter, provide for others who don't have the means to do that. And I think we have to figure out how to blend those two, which I think we are getting, as, as you've already spoken about, some other fresh models of thinking into either blended economies, thinking differently about social change, that gray area around tax. All these are p- examples of looking at actually how these different disciplines now are less different mm-hmm. and how business and nonprofits pretty much have fused together, which I think is a very positive thing ultimately. Yeah. But I still think that there's some, uh, how would I frame it? Uh, it's the duty of folks who are either volunteering or investing on any scale, in particular those who are investing in very large scale, to, uh, to not always trust themselves as much as some folks tend to do mm-hmm. about exactly their approach being the only way. The answer. That's right. And I would applaud and anyone who's stepping into any of these territories. That's fantastic. Uh, but don't think that your new way uh, or just your money is going to make the change. And obviously, there are more recent examples of that where people who have uh, committed to philanthropy in big way, the biggest ways possible, uh, have, I think, themselves learned through humility that it's not as easy as they may have initially thought. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these problems are intractable for a reason. That's right. They're, they're hard, and they're complicated, and they're multivariate, and they involve— And it takes different disciplines to get change to be made, which is what you were asking when we right. first sat down, which I agree with completely, and that's where this role of brokerage becomes even more significant. Is, is I think only success is going to be on scale when it's interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you stay within your lane, and your lane only, you're missing— you're missing so talk, I, huge opportunity. I, I'd love to, to pull in. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work that you did at Livestrong with the with the University of Texas and, mm-hmm. and some of the some of the partnership things that you did there around 
cancer and cancer care mm -hmm. were, were, ex were, were actually, I think, a really good example of mm -hmm. what you're talking about that will give people a sense of what this looks like in practice. Um, can you share a little bit about, yeah, sure. about what that was? I'll give you what three quick examples. The first is well before I was at, uh, at Livestrong, the team, uh, I think, quickly recognized uh, early on in the uh, sort of uh, early stage growth of the organization that, hey, we have this unique opportunity. We have this surfeit of, you know, uh, of investment. And what can we do with it for the biggest change? And there was always an adage there, which I appreciated uh, very, very much, uh, which was really highest and best use. That was just a common phrase, highest and best use, time, resources, money, people, uh, and relationships. And uh, what quickly the programs team, our sort of program experts um, who had PhDs and all experts in their field, they recognized that we don't want to sort of reinvent what's already happened, which is very much, and this is going back now 14 years or so, uh, or 12 years, uh, where in particular cancer organizations and cancer research centers pretty much are sole-sourced, vertical. They are not collaborating. Right. What Livestrong invested in, and that was, it was really our second largest investment over the history of the foundation, was $25 million to get major research centers, Johns Hopkins and UCLA and Dana-Farber, to actually work in concert uh, which was a condition of the grants that we had to focus on survivorship, how to help people live with cancer. Uh, and it was with mixed success over many years with the leaders, different various leaders from those institutions, all of whom were doing phenomenal work on their own and who were willing to try to embark in working together and still found it hard. Not necessarily the individuals, but the institutions right. were resistant or reluctant to and, even try that. And inertia and muscle memory that worked against some of that collaboration. Exactly right. Sharing data, sharing credit. It's exactly right. And, but the combination of those two, especially in the field of cancer, is a very complicated thing. Sure. So, uh, especially when the, there's such a premium on publishing for institutions. Completely. So the motives are different. The motives are uh, more challenging. Yeah. Uh, the leadership changes. Uh, and our team committed over 10 years, you know, a very significant investment of time to get those folks to work together. Um, and again, with some success, but also some real, uh, I think, some real things left on the table. That's one example. Uh, we also ended up hosting uh, the first global uh, cancer summit. Uh, and what we basically uh, provided was this platform for others to tell their great stories, whether it was an individual survivor or a major institution uh, or, a, or a government around the world. Uh, we had various uh, secretaries of health who, who are ministers of health who sort of told the stories of how they were caring for cancer patients within those countries in order to build leverage at the United Nations to drive forward uh, the United Nations to think differently about their investments in not only cancer, but other non-communicable diseases. Uh, so there's a little bit of strategy there, but the notion was let's create more of a chorus and not just the acapella, mm -hmm. and that that's going to advance all of our work collectively. Uh, wasn't easy. wasn't always fun. Uh, <laughs> But I would say that it did provide the trigger in which a lot of people felt more comfortable to try those things, even in their own worlds, right. in their own their own daily work. Um, and third was, as you already mentioned, we ended up uh, just in the last couple of years uh, committing to a $50 million gift with the University of Texas uh, to create the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, uh, which is really to grow. And uh, the University of Texas has just uh, created a, the first medical school to be built in the last 50 years from the ground up. So an innovative, to use that 
bastardized term. But also a blank page. Total blank page. So it allowed for, whether it was Livestrong or other groups, to begin to work with UT to think differently about what was possible if you could work from the ground up. Uh, And we, uh, again, it comes back to this highest and best use phraseology. Uh, We applied that and and ended up talking to and working with our friends at UT and uh, the medical school and and ended up committing uh, our largest gift ever. So in many ways, you know, a, an environment like this, like South by Southwest, where we're talking about innovation and new approaches and, and all kinds of um, all kinds of opportunity. We've been talking a lot about like th- this. This many opportunities also creates challenges, right? It creates challenges to our established ways of thinking. It creates challenges to leveraging new new ability, right? And and leveraging new skills and building capacity in ourselves and in our organization and having the humility to recognize that where are you excited? Like what are you, as you look out at, at new organizations or sort of even just trends in the space, like what are the things that are getting you fired up about our capacity to solve things right now? Certainly the, the I, I'll start with the willingness of the millennials. Mm. Uh, That's not a word we hear a lot. We hear a lot. There's a lot of data and research about millennials, this millennials, that. Willingness is a wonderful phrase. So I'm 50. I come from a generation that was probably a little bit <laughs> less. Tell. Yeah, okay. really, please. I'll edit that out. Now I've said it. Um, it's out there. Uh, the, uh, the millennials who, I'm, who I work with and know, I think have a different, I, I, I'm not exactly the, the, the kernel of sort of the language I'm not exactly positive on, but there is a, a willingness and a positive notion of I can actually go do something mm-hmm. it could be in their own town I'm not yeah. saying it has to be on the grand scale sure. I'm not speaking of it in this sort of south by context but I think this is the manifestation to some degree of that kind of energy the other side of the sword on that is I think there's a little bit of ADD with that mm. and there's a little bit of what we spoke of earlier and this is not just millennials so I apologize to millennials but uh, there's a little bit of what's the shiny new thing yeah. and Social change and social impact is a much longer curve. The, the ROI is usually two generations. Not quarterly. It's not quarterly. <laughs> and folks are used to talking in those terms. The fact sure. I'm even saying quarterly, I think, is indicative of the fact that we're sort of, that's our nomenclature yeah. now. And then that's, I think it's a false application when it comes to social change. Um, and... Uh, again, I'll, I'll keep falling back on this blending of we've had a generation now that's been very driven in, in, by design and, and by engineering, and that's exciting, and that's great, and uh, I, I, I'm better for it, both as an individual and as a, you know, a community-committed uh, person, but at the same time, uh, I'd like to see that more blended with the humanity, so to speak, and I think we have to revisit this, this marriage between engineering and the humanities. Interesting. Um, what are some of the institutes as you, you know, uh, think about how Livestrong has grown over the years and, and some of the things that you've, that you've worked on beyond, what, where are there organizations that you see, are, are there models or organizations that you see really sort of embracing all of the complexity that what we're talking about? I mean, I think hmm. to, a, to a certain extent, the, the, like the number of opportunities and the, and the pace of a pace of innovation is all. You know, it, it's not easy to reach for all of it. It's not easy to, as an organization, to 
be patient with yourself and to be humble. And these things that the words that you're talking about are, are often not ones that we associate with institutional change. But I think the pendulum will swing is my mm-hmm. point. I think there will be a revisiting of speed measurement, sort of all again, these sort of engineering the engineering language, which I think has needed to be mapped across yeah. a field that wasn't bearing sure. some well, of that good, weight for good many intentions years. Intentions do not necessarily mean good policy. Correct. Right? And so, like putting some method to that intention, I think has been important. Correct. And the rigor of that has really ramped up a lot of the games. It's also, though, at the same time, opened up the door to a lot of people thinking. Oh, just like it's like the restaurant world. Oh, well, I can open a restaurant because I saw <laughs> Gordon Ramsay. He was on TV and, you know, he knows how to do so. <laughs> but the reality is that's not going to happen. Right. And what do we have? We have a well, three. What's the old adage, if you want to be a millionaire, put $10 million yeah, into a restaurant. Totally. Yeah, totally. So we have an industry, so to speak, in, in philanthropy. It's what, $350 billion, something like that. Roughly. Almost 400, something like that. About 200 billion non-religious. And it is one of the things I would say, I think this is interesting to sort of put out there, at least in general, of I, I'm not necessarily a believer in American exceptionalism, with the exception of philanthropy. Hmm. And the gap that it fills in our communities, when we talk, especially in the latest campaigns, as you well know, about sort of the limitation of government, and the role of government, well, what happens if we start drawing back on philanthropy? And, 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 and if we see, see these investments begin to withdraw, who's going to actually fill that gap? So we have this in our bloodstream of, 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 our, of our America, um, oh, which fun- is so fundamental. It is so fundamental. Culture. Exactly. So how do we keep improving it? And whereby are some of these groups that are doing great things? Um, uh, so I, I sort of see a mix. I, I'll give you an example, a major in, institutional example. I think MIT, mm. from their practices, I don't mean from the standpoint of sort of execution in philanthropy. I think MIT and the MIT lab have changed the nature of what that institution has represented to millions of people. I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to whether it was Nick, Nick Ravante who founded it or others who have, pardon me, uh, subsequently been there, I think. Nick found it. I could be wrong about that. But it has changed the nature of that institution and invited people into the world of MIT who would never have thought of MIT. I think, obviously, I think Stanford's another example on the West Coast who've just thought differently about the invitation. um, And that has inspired very different thinking with the rise of, I think, the, you know, Stanford Social Innovation, uh, you know, Research Institute is, is, is that's a very healthy uh, range of, of thinking that has been a different kind of invitation. Um, I think there's another side to the rigor, to the, to, the, to the challenge of skepticism and rigor, like potentially triggering a pullback in, in generosity and philanthropy. I also think it, can, it creates an opportunity to expand it even further because I think there are spaces in conversations, some of which we've had here around how, for instance, corporations and brands spend money on social impact and because they have trouble articulating the ROI and the value of those investments those are tiny investments and and I'm you know the, the fortune 1000 spends about 18 billion dollars a year on mm-hmm. social impact those are important generous dollars but they spend a trillion dollars on marketing mm-hmm. and I think there's an opportunity where rigor and validation creates an, a, a permission structure and a new way of thinking to say, Let's get more of that trillion dollars that's being spent on 
TV ads and other things into that $18 billion bucket. And now we start expanding what's available to solve problems. Totally. I mean, I think that there is, this comes back to the millennials and, and even beyond where the culture of meaning is now an actual marketable item. Right. And Tom's and is probably a little bit more of the sort of easiest example sure. of, a, of an inviting brand. Whatever is one's decisions about Tom's choices are is fine. But uh, a place like that has changed the invitation about why I buy a shoe. It's a shoe, but (laughs) wow, that's a kind of different proposition. So, what am I affiliating with? Yeah, what What am am I I connecting to? Associating with my own identity, and I think that's right. You know, to the back to the sort of question around willingness and millennials, I also think there's an expectation of meaning Mm -hmm. that I I think is a positive thing. I think it pushes us in a direction where we are more demanding about things mattering to us, and and less willing to let it slide when they don't. Right, and so how do you capture the excitement of my individual choice to knowing that I'm a part of a broader community that's also making either similar choices or divergent choices? And this comes back to this notion of what I think is still missing uh, are the agents and the brokers out there. Who's helping to monitor? Who's articulating and shaping? I'm, I'm less enthusiastic about some of the what I'll call sort of more institutional organizations that have done that over the years. Uh, I think they're they're not keeping up to pace with how much has changed. Sure. Uh, and I think they could leapfrog and help play a role like that. But uh, they've been they've been uh, sort of too much in the weeds. Um, so there's a place, I think, for that. Uh, but somebody has to help sort of disambiguate all these different pieces. I don't see anyone doing that currently. I, hmm. And again, I hope some of your, you know, folks and colleagues would know the answer to that. I don't. Uh, and I've been doing this for a while. Um, and so uh, I'm very hopeful. I'm very excited. And yet I think that there is something to be said about this grounding, this needed grounding in uh, why we all do this to begin with that I think has gotten lost to some degree in the last yeah. decade. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's a little bit of we get excited Right, and we and and I think think that's good that we are passionate about these things, but they're sort of the, you know, feet on the ground, head in the clouds around, like, grounded in a reality of how complicated things are, but with unbounded ambition, right? Is that's that's how I always want to approach problems like this, and that's how I want institutions approaching problems like this, right? That that we don't take the sort of grounding as a limitation on what we are trying to achieve, right, and sort of take that as a way of sort of limiting our ambitions on what we think is possible, but that we're also not just casting about without an understanding of how complex things are and how hard things are and how long they take. So as an example, I mean, look at the ice bucket challenge. Do you think most of the people who participated could actually say what it was that they were actually contributing to? (laughs) Let alone how was the organization, and believe me, I appreciate what it means to have a surfeit of dollars come in through the doors, that's an enormous, enormous challenge and responsibility on yeah. that organization, whatever the organization yeah. is. And I really uh, wish those guys the best, and I mean this in the best way, the best of luck in terms of managing right. a sudden just windfall yeah. of resources that can literally bury an organization and get them into really deep challenges. And that would be a shame because then it turns people off in the future from wanting to give. And this comes back to this notion of who's articulating and providing the sort of contextual background to how organizations can, should do, and how well are they working. I, I've always had a sort of bugaboo about groups like Charity Watch, not because it's not important, 
they're just one of the first folks to ever do it, and that's who the reporters ended up looking at right. for fundamental information about nonprofit right, organizations. About charity navigator? The Charity Navigator, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Pardon me. Uh, and I think even Charity Navigator has, has acknowledged that themselves and started— But how long did that take? It took a while, but it, right, I, and I and I think they and they deserve that challenge. But I also think they have stepped back and said, "I don't. We need to reimagine this, right?" And the guide stars of the world have have come together actually to sure. say, "But it took. We, I would argue that it took longer it took than long. it than it should have okay. for folks who were claiming to be objective observers of what's going on, yeah. and they weren't keeping their own chops as as sort of bright and spotty as they were asking of others." In my opinion. Yeah. Folks can disagree about Look, that. I think it's important that we're demanding of, of people who are providing transparency and systematic sort of frameworks for an entire sector. We need to be exceptionally demanding of those actors. Because Correct. they are creating expectations and targets for the 1.4 million nonprofits in the country. And if they are off by a degree, that entire, you know, you sort of end up, you know, end up in the clouds in, in, a, in a pretty dangerous way if if a lot of organizations are all off by one degree. That's and right. So I, I think I think we are right to be demanding of them, but I, well, I'm encouraged by their willingness to embrace that and True. to say it may have taken too long, um, but to say, look, th- we need the next evolution of what this means. Mm-hmm. Right? The, it came up, uh, I mentioned, I referenced this panel that, that Lane was on uh, yesterday about the future of philanthropy, and one of the things that came up was this sort of debate around, uh, around um salaries and uh sort of administrative back office mm-hmm. costs and and our obsession with program only dollars right as if those programs weren't op- operated by people who are talented correct um the, the idea that we have allowed talent to become an administrative cost overhead i think has done an, Im- an incredible damage to the sector but it speaks i think to the again the human impulse that people have of well i give a dollar that means that someone's getting fed and in their minds that means that they picture somebody literally serving the ladle, ladle of soup at the soup kitchen yeah, but paying that person to move the la- label is not what that dollar is allowed to be for correct that's crazy cur- cur- currently that's correct so how do you reframe those kinds of discussions yeah. you're allowed to buy the soup but you're not allowed to give it to like, that's right and that that just the, the the idea that talent isn't in fact the lifeblood of an organization and one of the most important things that we invest in i think works against us sometimes in being able to keep like really world-class exceptional talent inside in, inside the sector yeah i mean i'll give you i mean we had a huge challenge of that i'll give you Livestrong as an example and some other organizations where i work but certainly at Livestrong, people assume because of the size of the brand that we have that we had thousands of people all over the world we were about a hundred people just here in austin right and we were maxed out yeah. and we just exceptional colleagues and fantastic at their work and trying to keep up with what we were trying to do was virtually impossible um but we uh i i think we were lucky enough to arrive at a balance that worked relatively well but that was a and we were just one small organization that was that was a challenge for us you know definitely well look thanks for uh agreeing to come down thanks man a little time with us talk about where we're headed um look i think there's so much opportunity now and to sort of have this after a week of lots of detail and lots of panels to like step back and think a little bit more systematically, I think is a really important part of this process. Yeah, same, man. Well, I'm glad you guys are doing this and it's exciting. And the next time I hope you wear Bermuda shorts and, uh, you know, it's there's, good a reason, interview. there's a reason why don't, we don't do these things on video. <laughs> we all knew that beforehand. Thanks for being here. Okay, man. Appreciate it. Thanks.
thank you for joining us. We'd love to stay connected, so follow us on Twitter at TimShell or visit us at TimShell.com. Until next time.